Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Father in heaven, may you speak to us through your word and may you use me, Father, I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? The majority of you would probably say a disciple is a follower of Jesus and that they are. But the question that's most important for us today is how is a disciple made? How is a disciple made? Because I know that disciples aren't born, but disciples are made. You know, if I asked everyone in the congregation today and I wrote down your answers, there would be different answers that I would get from each and every person. Because our understanding of discipleship is different. Now... I think that there should be a consistency when it comes to discipleship and the process of it. And what I mean is this. As church, we are very good at running programs and running events and coming up with strategies and coming up with ideas. But Jesus calls us to make disciples. And it's not just the seven-day earnest church, but it's Christianity in general. We focus so much on the programs that we forget the people. Jesus wants us to invest in people, not programs. He wants us to pour our lives out and make self-replicating disciples. And we're intentional with this. You know, um, has anyone here ever seen, uh, it's a documentary called Supersize Me. Okay? If you want to see how bad McDonald's is for you, you go watch that documentary. It's a guy who eats McDonald's for a month. For breakfast, lunch and dinner. And basically what happens if they ask him to supersize him, he takes the largest, you know, supersize option. In America, you get the fizzy drinks, which are, you know, huge. So he eats this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he's a very fit guy. And after about two or three weeks into the, into the I don't know, scientific study, I don't think you needed science to prove that McDonald's is bad for you. I mean, it's bad for you. And after three weeks, he starts to gain weight. He starts to have issues with his liver. And the doctor says, you can't continue doing this because you're going to kill yourself. And one of the things that he does in, in, in the documentary, he goes to a primary school. And when he's at the primary school, he goes into the primary school. And a number of kids come before him. And he's showing them pictures. I don't know if you can remember this scene. But he's showing them pictures of famous people. The current president of the United States of America. He shows them. The kids have no idea who it is. Past presidents, they have no idea. Great figures in history, they have no idea. But then he shows them a picture of Ronald McDonald. Oh, it's Ronald McDonald. One of the people that he shows them is a picture of Jesus Christ. And they have no idea. Would you say that that was sad for a Christian nation? And the question I asked myself when I saw that was why didn't they recognize who Jesus was And I thought they didn't recognize who Jesus was because they didn't see Jesus in the lives of his disciples. Because isn't that what a disciple is? A follower of Jesus who reflects the image of Christ in them. I want to give you two simple things that summarize what discipleship is. The first one is discipleship is simple. I invite you to open your scriptures with me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 17. When Jesus calls the 12 disciples, Mark 1 and verse 17, the thing with Jesus is Jesus took complex things and he made them simple. He took complex thoughts and he boiled them down into simple messages that anybody could get. 
You've got to understand that Jesus was operating in a cultural period of time where there was a vast, vast array of religious thoughts. You had the Herodians, you had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, you had the Zealots, you had the Essenes, and you had all these other ideas. Jesus comes on the scene. What is Jesus going to say that's different to them? Is Jesus going to make it more complicated or is Jesus going to make it easier? And the thing with the Jews is the Jews, they they held to the Ten Commandments very rigidly and they uplifted the Ten Commandments and they obeyed the Ten Commandments as we should. But for every single one of the characters in the Ten Commandments, every single one of the letters in the Ten Commandments, they actually made an additional law for each and every letter. So there were 613 extra laws based upon each and every letter in the Ten Commandments. And they would come together and they would debate them. And they would debate them. And they would debate them. And that was the lives of a religious scribe, debating these laws in which they had made based upon the letters in the the Ten Commandments. Would you say that that would be confusing? It would be very confusing. If you wanted to join the Jewish nation, you'd have to learn all these bits and pieces. So that's when people came up to Jesus and they questioned Jesus and they said, Hey, Jesus, what's the most important out of all the commandments? Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, I'm going to take something that you have made complex and I'm going to make it simple. Discipleship shouldn't be complex because it's not. Discipleship is simple because following Jesus is simple. Let's have a look in Mark chapter 1 and verse 17. Look at what Jesus does here. Verse 17 starts, it reads this. It says, then Jesus said to them. Who's them in the text? It's the disciples. So Jesus is talking to the disciples. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Do you see that just there? He says, follow me and I will make you become. In other words, they're not already fishers of men. But there is a process in which they will engage in, in which they will become something that they aren't. And that's what discipleship is. Becoming more than what you are, actually becoming what God wants you to be. But isn't it just so simple? Because here's some simple fishermen fishing on the Sea of Galilee, casting in their nets. Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. He looks at them and says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Was that complex language? I mean, Jesus meets them where they are. He uses the common vernacular, the common tongue, fishers of men. Well, that would appeal to them because they're fisher men. So discipleship number one is a simple process in which we listen to the the voice of Jesus and we follow afterwards. So right behind me, we have these banners. Attracted to Jesus, committed to Jesus, together in Jesus. You know, the scriptures read, without vision, the people perish. So what does attracted to Jesus mean? Well, this year we're going to explore that. It's the process in which we enter into the discipleship model. And it's the easiest, most accessible way because Jesus is accessible. I don't know about you, but when you read the Gospels, is Jesus pushing up barriers or Jesus bringing down barriers? Jesus pulls the barriers down that the people might come in. So the first phase of any discipleship process is the easiest and most accessible part of it all. Attracted to Jesus. And that's why we're here this morning, aren't we? We want to fall more in love with Jesus. 
I have drawn them with an everlasting love, it says in Jeremiah. The most accessible point in the discipleship model for this church is the worship service every Sabbath morning. You don't have to be a member to experience that. You just come, you just sit, you just stand, you just pray, you just listen, you glorify God, and you are being trained as a disciple. But there's more than that. I mean, you think about any relationship, it's the weekend of relationships, you know. There's initial attraction, then there's a commitment into a dating relationship, and then there's a marriage, there's a togetherness there. It's a progression. You don't just go up to a girl that you like on the street and say, let's get married. You know, it's not how it happens. That would be weird. But there's a progression there of knowing, of learning, and of growing in that relationship. So attracted is the initial entry point into the discipleship process. Commitment is entering into a community fellowship, small group ministry in which we are starting in this church through the UR Church program. And if you haven't joined one, I'd encourage you to do so. Many people actually are, and they're receiving great blessings from that. So the first point is the most accessible, then it goes into a greater commitment of learning more of Jesus, of committing more to a fellowship group and following in the footsteps of Jesus. And the last one is together in Jesus, where you use your ministries, you use your talents, you use the gifts that God has given you to serve him in the local church context, whether that's here in the Moolumbar church community, and it's extending out into the broader community of Moolumbar here. It's not a linear thing, discipleship. It's a circular motion. Just because you're sitting here at the together phase where you're thinking, well, I'm, in, I'm a deacon and, and I do the offering or I'm an elder. and No, 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 no. You haven't arrived. You keep growing. You keep growing because discipleship is a journey as well. You never arrive. You keep going until you get to your destination. And if I, if I read the scriptures correctly, the destination isn't getting to a certain place as it is when Jesus comes. So you keep growing, you keep learning, you keep moving forward until Jesus comes. I mean, no one's arrived here and no one's saying that they have. I messed up. We're all messed up. But isn't that why we're here? Because Jesus has drawn us through himself. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10 and verse 27. John 10 and verse 27. Today we're doing a Bible study on discipleship, as you probably haven't already picked up. If you have, then well done. If you haven't, then it's my bad. I haven't communicated in the proper way. So number one, discipleship is simple. Discipleship is accessible, but discipleship is also relational. Jesus here is using a common analogy that was very familiar to them in the time that they were living. There were shepherds and there were sheep. Whole occupations were built up around this type of lifestyle. Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. And look at what Jesus says here in verse 27 of chapter 10. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me discipleship and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand you know this is the thing with discipleship and this is the thing that I struggle with in my Christian experience because Jesus comes up in I think it's Matthew 6 or no it's Matthew 7 and Jesus says many will come up to me in that day and say Lord Lord haven't we prophesied in your name Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done many great things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. 
I never knew you. What does that tell me about discipleship? Well, discipleship isn't gaining a whole lot of information as we should study the scriptures and we're recommended to study the scriptures. Discipleship isn't doing a lot of activity for God, but we should use our gifts and talents to serve God. Discipleship is growing in a relationship with a person and that person is Jesus Christ. Just think about it like this for a moment. My relationship with Rosie. Tomorrow I'm marrying the most beautiful girl that I know. Okay, everyone should go, oh, with that. Now, the thing is, if we're in our dating process, if I just memorized a whole lot of facts about Rosie, Rosie likes cups of tea. You know, Rosie likes to exercise in the morning. Um, oh, I'm doing bad here. Um, you know, Rosie likes all these little things. And I come up with a whole lot of facts and I can just regurgitate what she's like. Or I can run around the house and I can mow the lawn for her. I can clean, wash the dishes after she's had a cups of tea. I can do all these things for her. If that's all the relationship is built upon, information and activity, what's going to happen to the relationship? It's not going to grow because I never knew her as a person, if you know what I mean. There's that personal element. Information about God is fundamental to our understanding of God. And serving God is the greatest joy that the Christian can ever experience. But those things should never be substitutes for actually developing a relationship with God. Because if you never develop a relationship with God, then sadly, those words from Jesus where he says, I never knew you, can become words in which he would speak to us. The saddest words in which any of you would ever hear would be, sorry, I never knew you. Discipleship is relational. It's a person. But look at what Jesus says in the text there. It's just so powerful. He doesn't say they know me, but rather he says, I know them. There's that intimacy just there. That word know is, 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 is filled with intimate connotations. I know them in an intimate sense. And then verse 28 is the result. He says, because of this, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. I mean, if you want security this morning, if you want to leave this building with the assurance that you are secure in Jesus, then I encourage you to become his disciple. Because if you are his disciple, then you will not be snatched out of his hand but you will be held as firmly and as tightly and as securely that no one can shake you out. The wolf may come, the servant may come, the stranger may come, the robber may come, but they will not take you out of the grasp of him who has loved you with an everlasting love. If you are a disciple, you are secure in Jesus because guess what a disciple does? A disciple follows. Who is a disciple following? Jesus. I want to jump now to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. If anyone has listened to my sermons for long enough in this church, you know that I like to use hiking analogies because I just love hiking. And last year I did a hike um, just down south that was, we passed through Woolai and... Um, Broom's Head and, you know, that area just down there. It was a beach hike. Now, I've never done a beach hike before, but I like the idea of it. You know, you finish a day of hiking and you jump into the surf and you cool off. Sounds like the, most, the best hiking trip you could ever do. But when we started the hiking trip, 
I realized that it wasn't going to be as fun as what I thought it was going to be. And you just think about walking on a constant gradient of sand. Okay, you're walking in the sun all day. You've got 20 kilograms on your pack. Your feet are sinking into the sand, so it's taking double the amount of steps to get where you need to get. Sand gets into your boot, rubs between your toes. 60 kilometers later, it feels like you don't have any toes. And I remember through that three-day journey, Rosie went with me and a few other friends went with me, I realized that this journey can be tough and discipleship can be tough. The thing is, once you engage on the journey, you can either go back or you can push on. If you give up then and there, it's over. The only way you can get out of the discipleship path is if you turn back to go which in direction that you once were. I hope the rain stops for tomorrow. Or you keep persisting. You keep persisting on the path in which he's called you to go on. There's no idleness. There's no stopping because you'll never reach your destination. As tough as it may sound and as hard as it may be, your only safety is either moving forward or going backwards. And going backwards isn't safety at all, but rather it's subjecting yourself to that which you once were before you followed. And there's no safety there. There's only safety in moving to the direction in which Jesus is calling you. And discipleship can be hard. That's why it's a journey. That's why it's described as a race. Races aren't pleasant things. You get to the stage in the race where you hit the wall and you feel as if you can't push on any further, but you push on. You hit the wall, you push on, and you make it to the end. I tell you what, the ending is more than worth it. When you reach the kingdom and you're standing in the kingdom, you're not going to go, oh, that was too hard, that was such a waste, I gave up so much to follow Jesus. You'll be in the kingdom rejoicing and you won't even be able to think about the things that you've given up. But look at what Jesus says here about discipleship. Verse 24 of chapter 16 of Matthew, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, if. That's conditional. Discipleship isn't a dictatorship. He says, if. It's your choice. If you want to jump on board and if you want to follow me, if you want to give your life to me and if you want to go on this pathway of discipleship, he says, if. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus here in these texts just here is showing us the essence of discipleship. It isn't rainbows and butterflies and bunny rabbits. He's saying you first need to deny yourself, which is the hardest thing in which you need to do. That's your cross, and then you need to see me on the cross and take my cross and follow in my footsteps. And the thing with discipleship is this, it's never idle. You're never staying in one place, but you're moving forward, you're progressing onwards, you're becoming more and more and more in Jesus. Because Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, wait here for me and watch me from a distance. Because Jesus says, follow me, because Jesus himself is moving. And in order to be where Jesus is, you need to follow him. That's why he says, follow me. But deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow in my footsteps. That's why Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Now you think about that for a moment. It's a journey that begins with death. But what does it end with? Life. It's a journey that begins with death, but it ends in life. 
And so much of the time we want to live our lives for ourselves, for security, for peace, for happiness, for joy. And we're trying to find life in the midst of this mess. And we think we've found it, but the end is death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Jesus says, you die first, then you live next. Because when you stop living for yourself and you engage in the process of discipleship and following Jesus, you actually find what it really means to live. Beforehand, you were living for yourself, but now you are living for a reason, and that reason is Jesus, and that purpose is Jesus, and that one is Jesus. And you will never be snatched from his hand. If you want security this morning, you find security in Jesus, not in your financial position. Not in your relationship, not in your reputation, but in Jesus. Because all those other things can be snatched from you, but Jesus can't. You know, when I think about the work that God has commissioned the church to do, I think some of the time we get it all wrong. We think that it's our responsibility to save souls. You know, and people said, I'm off to save some souls. You know, I'm I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Yes, God wants to use us in the process of reaching out and the process of bringing people to a knowledge of Jesus. One plants, another waters, but God does what? He brings the increase. God's the one who saves. And more and more when I go and I do Bible studies with people in their homes, more and more I realize that it's God and not me. I just open up the scriptures and let God speak. The spirit comes in, the spirit touches, the spirit moves, and the spirit says, it's none of me. God does that because he's faithful. Someone comes into the church, someone gives their life to Jesus, and we're celebrating that this afternoon, Erica. At three o'clock this afternoon, Erica's giving her life to Jesus in baptism. Now, I just want you to focus on this thought here. They enter into the church. They become a member of God's church Is there a responsibility for the church? Salvation is God's responsibility. Discipleship is ours. And so much of the time we we get someone and they're baptized and we're like, okay, next one, let's move to the next. Or what about that new child in Christ that we need to nurture and grow that they can become a disciple who makes disciples? And as a church, we failed in that capacity. And as a minister of the gospel, if that has happened to you, I apologize. But from this point onwards, by the grace of God, it will not be the same. For the church is about doing the Father's business and following the example of Jesus, which is making disciples for the kingdom of heaven, which will turn the world upside down, as did the early apostolic church. You just think about it like this. A new child is born. Are you going to leave it? Are you going to neglect it? Are you going to let it feed itself? Are you going to look after it? Are you going to care for it? (laughs) Of course you're going to do those things. How much more for a child that has stepped into their Christian experience need nurturing, support, and encouragement and affirmation? And I think so much of the time we, we neglect those people and assume we should be working with, and then they leave the church and we think, oh, they just weren't committed enough. They just weren't ready for baptism or they just weren't consecrated. And some of the time, yes, but most of the time, no. Because if anyone confesses Christ, it's evidence that the Spirit of Christ is in them. 
and they stand up there on their baptism day and they say, I pledge my life to Jesus. It's because Jesus is in them. And they leave. Whose responsibility is that? Yes, they can make their own choices. They're free to leave at any time. But at the end of the day, it's also the church's responsibility to nurture those people in the faith. And our hands have blood on them if we don't do that. Because they've entered into our community. We have approved their baptism. We've invited them into this beautiful thing called church fellowship. And then we neglect them. Church. We should do more for those who are new in the faith. A statistic says this, if someone who joins the church engages in a small group immediately after they join the church, they are five times more likely to stay in the church five years later. Five times is a lot. Because it's the process of discipleship where they connect with people. It's not connecting with people each and every Sabbath morning because people come and go, see you next week, but it's engaging in this community fellowship. It's going from attracted to committed to together in Jesus that we may become more for his sake. So the question I want to ask you this morning is where are you in the discipleship process? Are you attracted to Jesus? Are you coming to church and worshipping God? Are you committed to Jesus? Or are you together and united to serve Jesus using your gifts and talents for him? It's a measurable thing. Jesus said that he would make them become. It's a process. And processes aren't unspiritual because Jesus had processes. It's a journey. Discipleship is a journey, friends. A journey that ends in life because that's where God is. The question is, where are you on that journey? Are you following or are you standing? Jesus says, follow me. He moves. Do we move with him? Do we engage on this process of discipleship or do we wait and watch from a distance, hoping that we will become fishers of men by just standing back and watching? No, he says, get involved Everything aside, jump on board and become everything you could possibly imagine and yet infinitely more. What makes us a disciple and what demonstrates that we are disciples is self-denial and the cross. They're the words of Jesus. Deny yourself and pick up your cross. But it's not just your cross, it's his cross. And before you can pick up your cross, you have to look at his cross I could know a lot of facts about Rosie and I could do a lot of things for Rosie, but that's not what God wants. He does, but he wants it from the right impulse, which is knowing him and loving him. Unless this is brought into our experience, we cannot know God. A Christian's duty is to know Jesus and to make him known. I challenge you and encourage you, church family, to jump on the process in which Jesus has called us to fulfill as a church. Coming up next, part two of Pastor Ashley Smith's series on discipleship. Today's message is what you see and what you don't. What you see often isn't what you don't see. You know, sometimes you only see certain things. And, you know, this is a a picture of an iceberg up on the the screen that I'm showing you this morning. And, and with icebergs, quite often what you do see is just the tip of the iceberg, and that's the saying, this is just the tip of the iceberg. That entails that there's more under the iceberg that you don't see. And sometimes it's what you don't see that is the most dangerous thing of all. 
And you can think of the story of the Titanic. It wasn't the iceberg on top, but it was the iceberg underneath that actually was the, the thing that caused the destruction. I've got another illustration, and I'm going to ask Rosie to bring this illustration up. This is actually a live illustration. This little guy's name is Paddy. Rosie and me became parents. Um, this is, and the way with, where we, we view it is, you know, he's terrified of you guys. Um, the way we view it is, you know, this is one commitment. A dog's the next commitment, then the child's the commitment after that. So we're working up. But what you see here is you see a cute little kitten, a little fluffy, you know, ball of love. But what you don't see is a little kitten that when you're sitting on the, when you're sitting on the, 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 the table, not sitting on the table, sitting at the table, he claws up your leg to sit on your lap. You don't see that. You don't see the little kitten that, that scratches the furniture or uses the rubbish bin as its litter box. You don't see that. You don't see the little kitten that tries to sit on your face when you're doing your devotion because he just wants to be near you in the morning. Or the little kitten that bites at your Bible or any other book that you have. You don't see that. What you see is a cute little fluffy kitten that's absolutely terrified right now. But you don't see the little terror that he can be and that he will be when he gets a cat because this little thing is going to become a cat. And we know that cats can be quite feisty. You know what I mean? And the thing is, sometimes the thing that you don't see is actually more terrifying than the thing that you actually do see. And this leads me into my illustration or the scriptures this morning can take him back his... He wants to go back to bed. I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. And today's message is going to be taken from the book of Genesis and we're going to look at the history of humanity. And we're going to look at the history of humanity from this chapter and not just the history of humanity but also the way in which Satan pictures the picture or the image of God towards humanity that causes humanity to distrust God that causes humanity to become unattracted to God, and ultimately that causes humanity to turn from God. And there's three methods in which Satan uses to question God's character in the book of Genesis. And today's message is a twofold approach. We're going to have a look at the questioning of Satan, and we're going to have a look at the demonstration of God, how God counters the accusations of Satan himself. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the scriptures read this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here comes Satan. It's the first time that Satan is introduced in scripture. Now, if you were reading the scriptures chronologically, in other words, from beginning to end, and you read the first two chapters, what you would have seen of God is you would have seen that God creates. God creates and it is good. God creates and it is good. God creates and it is good. And in the culmination of God's creation, he looks upon all his created wonders and he says that it is very good. God then gives them Sabbath, the day in which they can rest and commune with him in Genesis chapter 2. And then God gives them each other, Adam and Eve, together in that union, that marital union. And then God gives them a rule, just one rule. It's not an intense rule. It's not an overbearing rule. It's just one thing. God had given them everything in the garden, and there's just one thing they need to avoid. And that was their choice, to choose God or to choose against God. So basically, from the opening two chapters in Scripture... 
you don't get the fuller picture of God that you get in the rest of Scripture. You know what I mean? How can you contain God in two chapters? I mean, how can you contain God to one encounter with him? God is infinite. God is so much. Adam and Eve would have known that he is creator. That is as much as they would have known so far. Satan turns up in chapter 3. And he casts shadow or doubt on the character of God. And if you're reading it, we know the. it's kind of like when you watch a movie and you know the end of the movie before the beginning of the movie. You know how it's going to wrap up. You just imagine it from Eve's experience here in the garden. She doesn't know fully. And the person reading the scriptures just here, when they get to chapter 3, they may think, hmm, this is plausible because we don't know everything about God yet. Does that make sense? Because Satan starts to go into some accusations against God and the reader may be thinking, well, maybe they are true, just as Eve was thinking, maybe that is true. And Satan comes in verse 1 and he says, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat from every tree in the midst of the garden? Satan does this and he does this very well for the Christian today. The first temptation which Satan will pursue to undermine your faith is he will get you to doubt this book. Because if he can get you to doubt this book, then you'll believe anything. If you're not standing for something, you're going to fall for anything and everything. So he brings the, the, the scriptures and what God has said, God's spoken word. And he says, has God really said that? Are you, has God really said that you shall not eat of every tree? Did God say that? Jump to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and you see expressly what God says. God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Do you see any knots in there? Is there any knots in verse 16? There's no knots. So when God gives them the instruction, he lets them know first and foremost what they have. So he shows them just the, how much he's given them. He shows them how liberal he is in his gifts. He's like, everything in this garden is yours. And you can have as much as you want of it. And then you jump down to the next verse. And it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan puts the knot in the wrong place. And what he also does is he takes away the freely. Because he wants Eve to understand, to have this false picture that God is withholding things from her. Satan will get you to doubt God's word. And the second thing along the lines of that is he will get you to doubt God, his character himself. Where you think that God is withholding something from you. Have you ever thought that in your own experience? God's withholding something that's in my best interest to have. When I was a teenager, absolutely. I focused so much on the restrictions and the thou shalt nots that I forgot what God had so freely given me. You know, when I have kids one day, well, I have a kid now, you know. But when I have kids one day and it comes to the Sabbath, so much of the time we focus on the things that we should not do on the Sabbath, that we forget the things that you can only do on the Sabbath. And when I teach my kid about the Sabbath and the importance of spending time with God, I'm going to share with them that it's a day in which we bask in God's presence. It's a time where we commit to family. And I'm going to make it a family day with God, the most special day of the week. 
it's kind of going to be like Christmas every week where they get to see their dad. And, well, it's going to be a bit hard because I'm a minister, but you know what I mean. It's going to be a special day. Instead of the thou shalt not do this, 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 because Satan will get you to focus on the prohibitions that you miss what God has freely given you. And yes, there are rules, and rules definitely are important, and I'm not saying cast the rules aside, but what are you focusing more on, the restrictions or the freedom that God's given you in his son Jesus? You know what I mean? And here we find this story. The first one, he gets him to doubt God's word. He frames it in the negative. And then the second thing, you jump down, Eve interacts with Satan. We'll read the scriptures here. The woman says to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. So she kind of exaggerates the command as well. Lest you die. This is the second deception. I was never into boxing and never will be into boxing. It's just not my kind of sport, you know. A bit brutal. But there's, there's something that I've heard with boxing in their combos, people fighting combos. It's like the, the left jab, the right jab, and then the left hook. So they set them up for something. This is why Satan operates the left jab, the right jab, and then the left hook, which is a knockout blow. This is the right jab. And the doubt here is upon the character of God and the restriction of God. Look what Satan says in verses 4 and 5. He says, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, did you know that God's holding something back from you? God's holding back a secret power and blessing from you that's in your best interest to have. He doesn't want you to have this knowledge. He doesn't want you to have this experience Because he's selfish. When I was a teenager, I used to think, if I'm a Christian, then I'm giving up on sport. I'm giving up on this. I'm giving up on that. And my view was so twisted that I thought that I was losing more than what I was gaining. And we take this into our Christian experiences. And if Satan is tempting you to focus so much upon the things that you think you have to give up in order to give your life to God, I encourage you at this moment to lift your eyes to Calvary to understand what Jesus has given for you. What do we give God when we give all? A sin-polluted heart for Jesus to purify, to cleanse with his matchless blood. I'm ashamed to even speak of it. Steps to Christ. And Satan will get you to focus on the restrictions that you forget the blessings. And she was just taken in by it. She wanted God. She wanted to be like God, not in character, but in power. And in verse 6, the knockout blow comes here, where it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Satan didn't go to the bottom of the tree at that orange that's been underneath the orange tree for a number of weeks. That's kind of grown a different shade and it's a bit soft. He doesn't go and get the manky looking fruit. He gets the best. And the focus here is on the appearance because Satan's alternative is not what it seems. 
He only shows you so much. He doesn't show you what's behind it. See, I had Patty up here before, and I said, this is what you see, but you don't see this. The iceberg, this is what you see, but you don't see this. Here's the fruit. It looks good, but you don't see this, Eve. Imagine if the curtain was pulled back and Eve saw the pain that she would go through when her eldest son killed her youngest son. Would she have eaten that fruit? When she could look down through the annals of time and see Jesus, her Lord and Savior, who walked in the coolness of the garden of the day with her hanging upon a cross, do you think she would have eaten that fruit? Because Satan only shows you so much. That's why the nightclubs are the brightest lights. That's why on TV the ads about alcohol are so fun and everyone's having a fun time and laughing. They don't show you ads about alcoholism because Satan shows you the best and he gives you the worst later. Surprise. And the thing is with Satan, it's kind of like a contract and in the fine print, you never read that fine print by the way, in the fine print you sign it and then he says, look at the fine print. It's what you don't see that gets you. And she takes it and she eats it. It looks good, it seems good, but it's not good. But this is where I love the story. Satan comes in and casts doubt on God's word. He casts doubt on God's name. And then he gives an alternative and the alternative is taken. And now the question is, is God who he painted him to be or is God completely different? And even Satan himself wasn't ready for this one. God pursues. God pursues. Verse 7. It says, When the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You know, I was sharing in the, the youth Sabbath school today about shame and guilt and how shame and guilt are different things, but they kind of twist in together at the same thing. Guilt is usually concerned with a moral action or an act. So there's a law or there's a code of conduct. You've turned away from the law or the conduct and you feel guilty because you've broken the law. Shame is different. Shame is, there's this ideal image that you have inside of you that you want to live up to and you just can't live up to it. You've let somebody down. So when you feel guilty, it's like grandma has baked a bunch of biscuits Another illustration, my grandma gave us a bunch of quiches and they were in the fridge yesterday afternoon. They were for Rosie and myself. Rosie was asleep and I was really hungry and I couldn't stop at three. I had to go four and there was none left. I felt guilty because I stole her quiche. That's guilt. I didn't feel shamed. I just felt guilty. But shame is different. It's like when Rosie and me were, were getting married and we just finished big camp and Rosie was sick and she had a real bad cough and I was getting sick and getting a bad cough and it was a week out from our wedding and I had to go to the, the big camp superintendent because all the ministers had to pack down the tents and I was going to be there until three days before my wedding and I said, I'm going to have to go. And he looked at me with a stern face and I know what he was thinking. He's like, you are getting out of this slacker. And I felt shame because I was letting somebody down. That's shame. And shame's broader. It's vaster than that. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. That's what shame is. They felt guilty, but they also felt vulnerable. Because what do they do as soon as they understand their nakedness? They try to cover it. 
They try to fix it themselves. And that's the human condition, isn't it? We find ourselves in a mess. We find ourselves spiritually naked. We find ourselves spiritually ashamed. We find ourselves distanced from God. And as hard as we try and as much as we want to, we try to fix the mess ourselves with things that we do or things we think we can solve the problem with. But it doesn't make it any better. It makes it worse. And they've covered themselves in fig leaves, but are they still afraid? Are they still ashamed? Because they're trusting in what they've done. And they don't know what God's going to do. You've got to understand that. They have no idea what God's going to do because they know that they will die and they're waiting for this judgment to come. And then God comes after them. Not in the way they expected. In verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So you just get this picture. They covered themselves in leaves because of their shame and their guilt. And now they're covering themselves behind the trees because of their their guilt and shame. Can you hide yourself from God? Behind a bush? You know, just sin is irrational, isn't it? You know, this statement from Bonhoeffer, he talks about shame. And he says, man is ashamed because he has lost something which is essential to his original character, to himself as a whole. He is ashamed of his nakedness. And this is a spiritual sense here. And they're running away from God because they're naked. They're running from God instead of running to him. But this is what God does. He pursues them. And the word used here in verse 8 is Yahweh Elohim. The covenant-keeping God comes after them. When Satan is talking to Eve and Eve is talking to Satan, they only reference God as Elohim. They drop the Yahweh, they drop the covenant, they drop the character here and they just use the generic name Elohim. But when God comes after them, (laughs) the covenant-keeping God is pursuing them. He's not giving up that easy. He's not letting go that quickly. But he's going to see this through to the end and he pursues them valiantly like a husband pursues his bride. In verses 10, the scriptures tell us, well, verse 9, it says, The Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? He's calling him. Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? God comes and God pursues, and the good news, church, is that God finds And God gives hope. And God gives strength. You know, what God knows about you this morning, church, this is on an individual level, wherever you are right now in your experience with God. What God knows about you doesn't change who God is. What God knows doesn't change who God is. What we think about God changes who we are. You look at the dark ages, what they thought of God resulted in what they did to many people who professed to know God. You know what I mean? What we know about God changes who we are, but what God knows about us doesn't change who he is. Now, Adam and Eve are in the garden and God is coming after them and they're hiding. Would you say that they're afraid? They're afraid. For the first time in humanity's experience, they are afraid. You just think about that. 
Imagine being in a place where you are absolutely content with the way that you look. Imagine being in a place where you are perfectly at peace. No anxiety, no trouble, no fear, no pain, no thoughts of carelessness, nothing like that. Imagine being in such a place. And then for a first time, all these emotions, these bad emotions come rushing upon you and you're terrified of the one who gave you life. They're more afraid of God than what they are in love with him. Who's changed? Has God changed? They've changed. This is what the nakedness does. The way that you view God changes. And when your view of God changes, the way which you relate to him changes too. And it changes everything about you. And then God does something quite powerful. When he asks them, who told you you were naked? He shows them that their innocence is lost. He shows them their spiritual nakedness. But it shows us so, so much more. I want you to shift your mind to redemption for a second just here. In the New Testament, we see a second Adam, which is Jesus, who comes and who succeeds where Adam failed. This second Adam goes to a garden. The garden was the Garden of Eden in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Different gardens. One was a paradise and one was a hell to Jesus. As Jesus is in this garden and as the cup trembles in his hands, he would save humanity at any cost to himself. His soul is being crushed even to the point of death. Different gardens, both gardens. Jesus is taken from that garden. He's taken before judgment. He's taken before trial. He experiences persecution and torture. And then he's hung up on a cross naked, ashamed. The guilty woes of humanity upon him. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they were ashamed. And Jesus says, you will have the promise and you will be redeemed because I will take your nakedness upon myself and I will give you a future and I will give you a hope. Adam and Eve made that decision in the garden at a tree. Jesus won it back at a tree. Adam messed up. Jesus was victorious. Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. But you have to see the whole way along that this grace in which God gives is costly. It costs him so much. You look at the messianic promise, which we don't have time to look at today in verse 15, where it talks about this, his seed and your seed, and and you will crush his head, Jesus. But serpent, you will crush him. You will bite his heel, talking about Jesus' figurative death. And then when you jump to verse 21, you see the promise come through. In a demonstration, it says, Adam and his wife, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The first death. The first time anything had ever died in the history of the universe. And who does the killing? It's God. God kills his creation to provide clothing to cover the nakedness of his guilty creation. God covers them. And this is foreshadowing the great plan of redemption where Jesus will come and die for us and offer us the life through his spilt blood. 
And this was the promise in which the church held on to, which Adam and Eve held on to, because grace is costly and it always comes at expense to those who are giving the grace. Redemption comes at a great expense to God. It always has and it always will. And the last point is he gives. He gives. In verse 20, see what he gives here. It says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. You know, I found this actually quite interesting when I was reading the story. You know, Eve isn't given her name until after the fall. You know, she's just referred to as woman. But after the fall, she's given a name. And her name is Eve. And Eve means life. Wouldn't you be tempted, tempted to give her another name? You know, Adam? <laughs> but he gives her life because that's where the promise is found. The promise of the Messiah who was to come is through this woman. And as every single time he calls his wife's name, he's reminded of the promise and the life that God has given him. It's holding on to the covenant, keeping God, Yahweh, Elohim, who pursued them, who demonstrated himself, who promised a substitution, who promised a way out. Eve, come here. Life, come here. Because life was theirs through the gift and the shedding of a life of another. We see Calvary demonstrated here. We see the character of God demonstrated here. We see Adam is clinging on to this idea of restoration. It's quite powerful. A few statements I want to read, and then I'm going to wrap this thing up. This was Satan's ultimate objective. He would change their love to distrust. And he wants to do that for us today too. This is what Satan wants to do. But this is what Jesus does. His death had answered the question whether the father and son had sufficient love for man. Satan's accusation, God's demonstration. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Because Jesus gave, God gave, life was there. And in Romans 6 and verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for buts in that text. But the gift of God. In closing, there's a question I want to ask you. And the question is, what are you choosing to see in regards to God? Is he attractive to you? Is he wonderful to you? Or are you terrified of him? Are you unsure of him? Are you uncertain of him? Are you doubting his word? Are you doubting his character? My encouragement for you this morning is to get to know him. My encouragement for you this morning is to know Jesus to live for Jesus and to become attracted to Jesus because I tell you what, he is attractive. And Satan will do whatever he can in his strength to twist the picture of God in your mind because what you think about God changes the way that you relate to him and the way that you relate to others. In the Garden of Eden, God had given them a home. God had given them each other. God had given them life. God had given creation. God had given them responsibility. God had given them everything. God had given them marriage. God had given them Sabbath. God had given them all these different things. There is one thing that God hadn't given them, and yet he would give them most fully. And that was himself. 
and Satan wasn't expecting that. Satan wasn't expecting the lamb that would be slain from the foundation of the world. But what God promises, he does. And he provides a way out. Even though you blow the chance time after time after time after time and you wonder, will God really take me back again? And you open up your Bible to 1 John 1, 9. And the scriptures read, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to tell you this morning, that promise is still there when I looked at it this morning. Which means it's still there for you. And even though you may feel as if you've slighted God's chances and blown his mercy time after time, he's still there and he's still faithful. But just remember that grace is costly to the one who is giving it. To the Redeemer, redemption is always costly. What has God given you? What has God given you? And what will God give you? Sometimes we only see what we can see. And particularly with our relationship with God, we only see so much. But God wants us to look beyond in faith, to trust the things that we don't see. Adam and Eve didn't know everything about God's character, but they had to trust the promise that one would come. He's coming again. There may be doubts that you have as to why this thing has gone on for so long, but he's coming again. Don't doubt his character, don't doubt his word, don't doubt him. Don't take the substitute, don't buy the fruit, don't buy into Satan's lies because remember there's a whole lot back from there. If it's not Jesus, where else, who else, how else? Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you this morning for what you have done for us. Love so freely given, Father, that demands our life, our soul, our all. And Lord, just as Adam and Eve in the garden were confused as to what came next, the good news is that you came next, that you stepped in, that you promised salvation, and that you actually gave salvation. Your promises are so true and so solid and so powerful that as soon as you promise them and as soon as we take hold of the promises, they are ours in Jesus. Father, may we leave this place assured of forgiveness But may we also leave this place to short of who you are and what your desire is for us. May you bless us this day with your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.